Well, we're now going to be turning to God's Word, and uh, we've been exploring 1 John, and we're going to continue doing that this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 13, and uh, we're going to go to the end of the chapter. And uh, John is exploring two themes, love and judgment, and we're going to consider for a few minutes what he has to say about these ideas. Uh, You can read along in your bulletin, or you're welcome to read along in your own Bible as well. Starting in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the witness of your word. Uh, We pray that uh, our hearts would be inclined to your scriptures. We pray that, most importantly, that uh, we would be more deeply converted to your mission in this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to be exploring the themes of love and judgment in uh, this portion of 1 John. And uh, these two big ideas are what make for a really good story. And uh, I had a good story come to mind. And uh, it wasn't Shakespeare. uh, It wasn't Chaucer. It was the film Good Will Hunting. Have you ever seen it? Anybody else? Oh yeah, see some head nods there. Classic movie. You've probably seen it more than once also. If you're not familiar with it, it's about uh, Will Hunting who grew up in South Boston, and he grew up on a certain side of the tracks. He was poor. He would get in neighborhood fights, and uh, he grew up to become a janitor at MIT. And he was not just any janitor. He happened to be one of the most probably brilliant janitors in history, and he was a math genius. And he would go around, sneaking around the school late at night, solving problems that many of the professors were even having difficulty solving. And he ended up getting in trouble, and he developed a relationship with two older men. And uh, each of these men, in some ways, represented the potential fate for his uh, future. Uh, One of them was a celebrated mathematician uh, who met Will and wanted him to become just like him, another genius mathematician who would make his mark on the world. And the other was a therapist, a guy named Sean, who was brilliant as well, uh, but he devoted his life to people and serving people. And uh, really, Will, or Sean's uh, interest in Will was not for him to discover his genius, uh, but really just to know Will and to be involved in his life and to love Will. And the turning point for Will was not when he discovered his own genius. The turning point was actually when he realized that his therapist knew him and loved him. Uh, Sean had, or, uh, Will had spent most of his life uh, thinking that if somebody really knew him, Uh, They would reject him. They would judge him. 
And there is a point kind of in the middle of the movie where uh, Will discovers that Sean, his therapist, really loves him and really gets him. And this changes him and changes his entire trajectory in life. And this interplay between love and judgment is something that causes us to lean in more. We want to listen a little more attentively. Uh, Where our heart quickens a little more when we see love and judgment play out in stories. And that's what we're going to consider this morning for the next few minutes. How do love and judgment uh, have this interplay with each other uh, as John discusses it in our chapter? We'll start by looking for a few minutes at judgment and then we'll consider also uh, the priority of love. One of the first things that John tells us as we consider judgment is that judgment is marked by fear. This is how he puts it in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with judgment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Uh, John tells us that fear has to do with punishment, which he identifies with judgment. And if we wonder what John is talking about here, he's mentioning something very specific. He calls the day of judgment. And this is not a phrase that uh, John made up. In fact, this is a phrase that's used throughout all of his, uh, the scripture. And uh, what God is doing actively in the world is trying to rid the world of everything that's wrong. <laughs> and uh, he is in the business of uh, setting things to rights, uh, holding people accountable. And this uh, movement of God in human history has sort of a climactic ending uh, called the Day of Judgment, uh, where God himself will actually enter into the world to make kind of a final reckoning, a final setting everything right. And uh, it's something that can be fear-inspiring because part of what's wrong with the world is actually all of us. And uh, the problem is not just out there, the problem's in each one of us. And uh, it's not just uh, about being a good person or being an especially religious person. Uh, None of those will actually help us escape the big problem, uh, the the day of judgment is something where we're going to be held accountable. And what John is telling us is that, unsurprisingly, this is associated with fear. And for us as Christians, uh, John's comments may be a little uh, hard to to sync with other parts of the Bible, because the rest of Scripture regularly talks about uh, how fear of God is a good thing, uh, how we're supposed to be fearing the Lord. One of the most uh, well-known phrases is the, the opening of Proverbs, which says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to understand if maybe John is, is maybe not really reading his Bible very well, uh, we need to actually double down a little bit and see what does this word fear actually mean. And I'll give you an example because I think there's two ways that we can experience fear, uh, at least two ways that scripture talks about experiencing fear. You can imagine that you're uh, out going for a little hike, maybe you're in the Cascades, and uh, you turn a corner and all of a sudden there's a mountain lion. And there is a mountain lion right in the middle trail, and your heart leaps out of your chest. Uh, The hair on your neck stands up. You're frozen. You run. Whatever it is, you are terrified. That is one kind of fear, the mountain lion fear. There's another kind of fear, though, you can experience, which is say you're going on your hike, and you turn a a corner, and you leave the trees, and all of a sudden before you, there is a beautiful mountain. And it's large and majestic and grand, And standing before it, it's a little intimidating, actually, right? There's the size difference. You're so small, the mountain is so large, and you feel intimidated before this mountain. It's even a fearful experience in some ways. 
But one of the things that comes after that is a sense of wonder and a sense of awe. And you're actually drawn in. And that's another kind of fear. It's a fear that ultimately is a wonder and awe that comes from seeing the size difference between us and something else. And when the Bible talks about us having fear of the Lord, it's really talking about us having wonder for God, awe, being inspired by God, while we're also being aware of the fact that he is so much grander than us. And when the Bible talks about removing fear, it's talking about this mountain lion kind of fear. It's talking about this kind of fear that we have that makes us want to run, that makes us panic, that makes us feel threatened. And what is interesting about John's passage here is that he's talking about both kinds of fear, both the mountain lion fear and the mountain fear. And the fear that causes us to run is, comes from the fact that God is holy, uh, that God is pure, and that there is a deep incompatibility between that fact about God and the impurity that exists in the world. And God is committed to fixing and cleaning up the world, and that's a problem because we're kind of part of that as well. But what's also interesting in this passage is that uh, John tells us there's the other kind of fear, the fear that makes us draw closer, the fear that makes us lean in more. And this kind of fear, uh, John interestingly describes as being a surplus of love. On the day of judgment, we're told that we're going to understand love in a way that's especially acute. And we're not used to talking like that. We're used to talking about this day of judgment as this kind of very Hollywoodish event that's terrifying. But what John is talking about here is actually on this day of judgment, we'll discover the deepest, fullest meaning of what love is. He says that love in some ways will be perfected. And the reason we're going to understand what love looks like so clearly when God comes to uh, be more intimately involved in the world is because there's, we're going to appreciate the gap between the judgment that we deserve and the judgment that we receive. It's that gap between the judgment we deserve and the judgment, judgment we receive that makes us understand most clearly what love is. Now, I think for us, as we uh, use the word judgment, this happens to not only intersect with a larger discussion in Scripture, uh, but it intersects as well with conversations that we have in culture about judgment. And we as a culture would probably say that one of the marks of a good person is that they're non-judgmental. We regularly talk about somebody who is uh, a safe place, somebody who doesn't judge other people, and this being a desirable trait to have uh, in someone. And in some sense, this is certainly true. Uh, We uh, don't want to uh, be people who judge other folks. Uh, But also, if we kind of use the word judgment uh, in this kind of uh, cavalier, kind of big, broad brushstroke kind of way, it might mean it's really hard for us us to understand uh, what the Bible's talking about when we say God judges people, or maybe even that we should have judgments as well. And I think we need to, to think a little more carefully about what do we mean in these cultural conversations when we talk about judging people or being somebody who's non-judgmental. And what we find out is probably that there is a distinction between being a judgmental person and somebody who renders judgments. Uh, a judgmental person is actually something that Scripture itself uh, condemns. Uh, We're supposed to be people who are just as quick to point the finger at ourselves as we are at other people. Uh, We're supposed to be people who don't think we're a big deal and we can 
uh, be a, a place where other people can bring their wrongs and their difficult things, and we're going to be a refuge for people in those experiences. And yet there's also another kind of judgment uh, that is perfectly allowed, and that is rendering a judgment. And uh, rendering a judgment simply means that we are making a moral judgment about something. Uh, We're talking about something being right and something being wrong. And this is, in fact, is actually a very necessary part of the world. Uh, We need to have this tool to be able to navigate the world well. And uh, when we're looking at news headlines and we're seeing things that are uh, travesties, moral travesties around the world, uh, we need to be able to have the ability to make a moral judgment about this, to say that that is something that's bad and wrong and not the way the world should be. We also need to be able to look at people who uh, live lives that are exemplary, and we need to be able for us to say, I want to pattern my life after this person. We need to be able to say this person's actually a good person in a way. And for us to make moral judgments about people allows us to do that. And when we turn to how Scripture talks about judgment, what Scripture is actually condemning is people who are judgmental, Uh, people who are holier than thou, people who don't create space for brokenness. Uh, But what the Scripture also allows for is a framework that allows us to make sense of the world, people who are both heroes and people who are villains as well. And I think for us, uh, this larger cultural conversation has something to learn about the distinctions that we find in Scripture. Well, John uh, moves on also from not only talking about judgments, but he also talks about love as well. One of the things that John tells us is that with love, uh, love is in the business of exiling fear. This is how he puts it in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What John is telling us here is that love exiles fear. And this phrase, uh, casting out, is something that's used throughout Scripture, and it regularly is used to describe uh, an actual exiling kind of episode or some type of excommunication. And so in the Gospels, Jesus talks about a tree that doesn't produce fruit. He says he's going to cast it out. Uh, in in uh, other parts of scripture, the rebellious angels are told that they're going to be cast out of heaven. And all over the book of Revelation, uh, the word regularly comes up as a, a part of the, the broken parts of the world are going to be cast out of God's presence. And what John is very doing is very intentionally using this word, casting out, but he's kind of changing a little bit. And he's saying instead that uh, rather than this very intense, somber kind of experience, He's saying that love is in the business of casting out fear. Uh, That's what God is doing in this world, and that's what human history is actually moving towards, where uh, love is going to be doing away with fear. It's going to be excommunicating it. And this language, of course, is very poetic, and what we know is that love can't actually cast out fear in a sense. But what John does tell us is that God is love, and that God is somebody who embodies love and is the source of it, He is the one who was responsible for actively entering into this world to do away with fear, to do away with the judgment that's associated with fear. And what John uh, tells us is that this experience of doing away with fear, that it changes us, uh, that it makes us different, especially how we do our relationships. And John develops this by saying that the way we love others is by being loved. This is how he puts it in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. 
what John is giving here is a very important spiritual principle that uh, you can only really offer something to someone if you first received it. You cannot give something away unless you've also been given it. And what John is telling us is that you can't give away love unless you've first been loved. And the ultimate experience of being loved is when God himself, as the quintessence of love, actually moves towards us in love. And ultimately, God demonstrates his love for us that the judgments we deserve have been averted, and the love that is undeserved becomes ours. John tells us to appreciate judgments allows us to better understand the love that God has for other people, and then we're invited and changed to share that love with other people. Would God give us more of this love this morning and always? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us and uh, you gave up glory, you gave up your status, and you uh, entered into a ministry of humble service, ultimately giving up your life. We pray that this truth would, uh, uh, we'd be beholden to it, that your spirit would give us the faith to apprehend it, and that it would change us and transform us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.